Jim Elliott was a missionary who in 1956 was killed along with four of his friends and fellow missionaries while seeking to share the gospel with the Alka or Waldani people, a primitive and largely uncontacted tribe that lived in the jungles of Ecuador. And now the Waldani people had a reputation for their hostility towards outsiders and even had killed many who had wandered near their territory. But despite knowing these risks, uh, Jim Elliott and his missionary partners, his friends, they felt called to take the gospel uh, to these people, to this tribe. And so they spent weeks flying over the, the villages in the jungle, lowering gifts in a bucket from their airplane as it circled the villages to, to demonstrate their friendliness, their, their good intentions towards these people. Uh, eventually, the Waldani began returning gifts of their own in this very same bucket that dangled from the airplane. And so the missionaries came to the conviction that it was time to, to seek to meet face to face. So Elliot and four other missionaries set up camp near the Waldani territory and waited for the tribe to make contact. A few days later, this happened. A, a small group approached and the missionaries were able to engage in limited but friendly conversation. However, a, a couple of days after that, a, a larger and, and hostile group of the Waldani returned and attacked the missionaries, killing all five of them. But the death of Jim Elliott and his fellow missionaries was not the end of the story. And an amazing story of God's providence, two years after their death, uh, Elizabeth Elliott, Jim's wife, now widowed, their young daughter, along with the sister of another one of the missionaries who had been killed, were invited to, to move and, and live in a Waldani village. Uh, they did do that, and they showed Christ's love to those who had killed their loved ones. And through their ministry over the years, many Waldani people came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, in the years since, the tribe has been really radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a testimony of God's sovereignty, and it's a testimony of God's grace. But it's also a reminder that God often works through the sufferings of his people. God often works through the sufferings of his people. Jim Elliott and his fellow missionaries, as well as the, the families they left behind, were willing to suffer and did suffer for the sake of the gospel and on behalf of the Waldani people. But God worked through their sufferings to advance the gospel and bring many to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Well, in our text for today, which comes from Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, through chapter 2, verse 5, you can go ahead and turn there. You can also find the, the text of the sermon in the bulletin. What well, opens with these words from the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body. That is the church. I do not think that it is a stretch to think that Jim Elliott and his fellow missionaries and their families had these words ringing in their ears as they began their ministry to the Waldani people. Their willingness to, to suffer for the gospel seems to mirror the Apostle Paul's own willingness to suffer for the sake of the gospel, to suffer for the sake of the Colossians, and to suffer for the church. Uh, this should not be surprising. This should not be surprising to us because Paul's ministry serves as an example or a model of faithful gospel ministry. And not just for Jim Elliott, but a, but, a, but a picture of faithful gospel ministry for us all to follow. Uh, so please follow along as I read Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, 
through Colossians 2.5. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. For I want you to know how greatly I am struggling for you, for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me in person. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I am saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. For I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well-ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. The, The main idea of this text, and therefore the main idea of this sermon, is that faithful gospel ministry is marked by a willingness to both suffer for the gospel and to diligently labor to proclaim the gospel in order to present people mature in Christ. A faithful gospel ministry is marked by a willingness to both suffer for the gospel and to diligently labor to proclaim the gospel in order to present people mature in Christ. And to help us to, to think on that idea, I have three points for you to consider from today's sermon. The first is the nature of gospel ministry. The second is the content of gospel ministry. And then the third is the goal of gospel ministry. And so first, the, the nature of gospel ministry. Well, in Acts chapter 9, God says this about the Apostle Paul. He says, this man, Paul, is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, Paul's first appearance in the Bible is in Acts chapter 7. He is at that point known as Saul. And in Acts 7, we learn that Paul is a great persecutor of the church who made it his mission to stamp out Christianity by having followers of Jesus killed or imprisoned. So the Apostle Paul, once called Saul, was once a great persecutor of the church. But as Paul traveled to the city of Damascus in order to arrest more Christians, the Lord dramatically and miraculously intervened in his life. So we read in Acts chapter 9, as Paul was traveling on the road to Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one who you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Well, as we saw in those opening verses from Acts 9, Paul was called and commissioned to do two things. What did God call him to do? He called him to do two things. Take the gospel to the Gentiles, those who were the, the non-Jewish people. Take the gospel to the nations. Paul is known as the apostle to the Gentiles. And two, to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And this was his commission as an apostle. To suffer and to preach. To suffer and to preach. 
And we see both aspects of Paul's commission on display in his ministry to the Colossians. Look again at, at verses 24 and 25. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. Well, Paul willingly and Paul joyfully suffered for the people of God. Paul willingly suffered for the church. Now it is Jesus who out of an abundant love gave his life for the church. It is Jesus who suffered for the church. Jesus died on the cross for the church. And Paul followed his example by willingly and joyfully pouring himself out for the church. Eventually, Paul himself would be martyred for the sake of the gospel. Well, the list of what Paul suffered in his ministry is extraordinarily long. But the short version is that he was beaten multiple times. He was left for dead, stoned, imprisoned, shipwrecked, and was constantly under threat from those who were enemies of the gospel, chased out of cities and chased out of towns. You can read more about Paul's sufferings in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You can read about them throughout the book of Acts. And in fact, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, Paul was in prison at the time he wrote the letters to the Colossians. He was likely in prison in Rome. Although Paul had never met the Colossians, he made it clear that the sufferings he endured were for them. It was for their benefit. He suffered for them. And as we see in chapter 2, verse 1, also for the people of Laodicea, which was a neighboring city, probably about 10 to 12 miles from Colossae, and for others that he had never met. Now, Paul could make this claim because his suffering was directly related to his commission to preach the gospel. So Paul could say that he suffered for the Colossians. Now, why did Paul suffer so many hardships? It was because he preached Christ. His preaching was in service to the church. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, Epaphras, the one who planted the gospel there in Colossae, who founded the church, well, he was likely converted under Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And so Paul's preaching, at least indirectly, led to the, led to the planting of the church in Colossae. Well, if we were to return to the life of Jim Elliot, it would be right to say that he suffered on behalf of the Waldani people though he died before any of them came to know Christ. It would also be right to say he suffered for all those to whom the Waldani Christians have in turn ministered to over the subsequent years. Even more than that, he suffered on behalf of all those who have been converted through the preaching of missionaries who were inspired to serve on the mission field by his example and the example of his friends. He suffered for more than the Waldani. He suffered for the church. Friends, God uses the ministry and sufferings of his people to paint a much bigger and more glorious picture than they could ever imagine. I think God used the sufferings of Jim Elliot and his friends to paint a bigger and more glorious picture than what they ever could have imagined. But what does Paul mean when he wrote that he was completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? That Paul was completing in his flesh what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, Paul certainly does not mean that Jesus' death was not fully sufficient. That somehow Jesus' death was not enough payment for sin. Well, that would make absolutely no sense with what Paul just wrote in the verses that we studied last week about Jesus and his surpassing greatness and his reconciling work on the cross. 
It would make no sense with what Paul goes on to write in Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, that we will look at next week. That Jesus' sacrifice on the cross erased our debt of sin. It disarmed and disgraced the rulers and authorities. It defeated them. It would make no sense with what Paul and other biblical writers write in other portions of Scripture. No, Jesus' death is, is fully sufficient. It is all that is needed for salvation and the forgiveness of sins. There is nothing else needed. Paul's suffering was not needed for salvation. Friends, future suffering in purgatory is not needed. In fact, purgatory does not exist. It is simply a man-made invention that has no basis in Scripture. Nothing but Jesus' blood is needed for salvation. Now, friends, as a quick aside, this is why it is so important to let Scripture interpret Scripture. When we come to a, a difficult phrase like this, the first place we want to look to see what it might mean, or what it does not mean, is the context in which it was written. The book of Colossians, in this case. We have what Paul wrote last week, we have what he, we're going to see and study next week in Colossians 2, 14 through 15. And beyond that, we have other passages of Scripture in other books. This is a key principle in interpreting and understanding the Bible. We let Scripture interpret Scripture. So then, what does Paul mean? Well, one pastor put it this way. What is lacking is the afflictions of persecutions that all Christians will face to some degree until Jesus returns. What is lacking is the afflictions of persecutions that all Christians will face to some degree until Jesus returns. So if you remember when, when Jesus dramatically confronted Paul on the road to Damascus, when Paul was converted, well, Jesus asked him why he was persecuting him. Why was Paul persecuting Jesus? Jesus' union with his people is so strong, it is so secure, it is so close, that Jesus said that to persecute the church was to persecute him. The church is the bride of Christ. To persecute the church is to persecute him. When Jesus' people are afflicted, Jesus is afflicted. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, the Apostle John sees a vision of the heavenly throne room and sees those who have been slaughtered because of the word of God. In other words, those who are martyred. Well, these martyrs cry out to God and ask, how long? How long will it be until he returns to judge those who persecute them? Well, God's answer? They were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. In other words, there, there seems to be an appointed amount of suffering, even an appointed amount of, of those who will be killed for the sake of the gospel, that will be filled up before Jesus returns. In that way, Paul's suffering was filling up that which was lacking. And what we also see from those verses in Revelation is that those martyred were martyred because of. They were martyred because of the word of God. Friends, suffering and persecution is brought on by faithfulness to the word of God. Now, why did Paul suffer? It was because he was faithful to make the word of God more fully known. Paul's fundamental commission was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and it was his faithfulness to the task of preaching the gospel that brought suffering into his life. Now, friends, faithfulness to the gospel will inevitably result in opposition 
in a world that is opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will inevitably result in suffering. This was the nature of Paul's own ministry, and it is the nature of all faithful gospel ministry. It is the nature of pastoral ministry. The call to gospel ministry is at least in some ways a call to suffer. John Calvin, the the 16th century reformer, wrote this about Christian ministry. The life of a Christian, it is true, is a perpetual warfare. For For whoever gives himself to the service of God will have no truce from Satan at any time, but will be harassed with incessant disquietude. It becomes, however, ministers of the word and pastors to be standard bearers, going before others, and certainly there are none that Satan harasses more, that are more severely assaulted, or that sustain more numerous or more dreadful onsets. For we must take this into account that the gospel is like a fire by which the fury of Satan is kindled. In other words, pastors, those given to to Christian ministry particularly, should expect Satan's most severe attacks because they've been particularly set aside to proclaim the word of God. The gospel is like a fire by which the fury of Satan is kindled. This may take the form of particular temptations, but it can be because the faithful preaching of the gospel will inevitably bring opposition and criticism from those who are opposed to the gospel. Now, opposition naturally arises when sin is exposed, holiness is called for, and Christ is exalted. Now, friends, that is not to say that pastors are above criticism. That is certainly not true. Your pastors, your elders here, other elders are certainly uh, sinners in need of the accountability and correction of the church, just as much in need of the accountability and correction of the church as anyone else. But I do want you to—I do want to encourage you to pray for your elders. I want to encourage you to pray, pray for Pastor Ben, and pray for me. Pray what Paul prayed for the Colossians in chapter one, verse eleven, that we may be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. I pray that we would be strengthened in our labor for you, that a faithful pastoral pastoral ministry, as we we see in this passage, labors and strives and suffers on behalf of the flock of God. pray that we we covet your prayers, that that would mark our own ministry. But brothers and sisters, I also want you to understand that the bold and faithful proclamation of the gospel is not just the responsibility of pastors. Pastors have been particularly set aside for this task. You might say, it's my full-time job. It is my full-time job. But all Christians have been called to gospel ministry. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul calls the whole church to teach and admonish one another. The Great Commission is given to all Christians. Therefore, all Christians should expect some degree of suffering, some degree of opposition. They live in a world that is opposed to the gospel. Calvin wrote that the life of Christians is perpetual warfare. It is a perpetual warfare. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, that all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And brothers and sisters, the faithfulness to both live out and proclaim the gospel in your own lives will bring suffering. Perhaps opposition from your your family for becoming a Christian. 
perhaps loss of friendships or a loss of respect as people think that you are, are foolish for believing in Jesus. Perhaps it comes with your daily struggle against sin, deep-rooted sin, and your daily fight against sin. Perhaps it comes from friends who are offended that you will no longer join them in certain activities, that you will no longer engage in certain conversations. Friends, you might lose your job for the sake of the gospel. You might give up some level of earthly comfort for the sake of the gospel and for the love of others through your gospel-motivated generosity. And we know even today that there are Christians who are thrown into prison and who are killed. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And friends, this does not mean that you need to desire suffering. Christians do not have to desire suffering, but they should expect it. You must be willing to suffer in order to faithfully follow Christ. The possibility of loss or suffering is no excuse to fail to share the gospel with others, and it is no excuse to fail to faithfully follow Christ. All who did want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, this truth, this reality, is what makes the teaching of the prosperity gospel so evil. If you do not know what the prosperity or the health and the wealth gospel is, it teaches that God rewards increased faith with increased health or wealth. Ah, if our faith increases, our health and our wealth increases. Our earthly blessings will increase. All we need is more faith. It teaches that your faith brings earthly prosperity, that your prayers and your tithes are a way to gain material blessings from God. Friends, the prosperity gospel is one of the devil's lies. The Bible teaches that suffering comes from faithfulness to the gospel. The prosperity or the health and the wealth gospel teaches the opposite. That suffering is in fact a sign of a lack of faith. And yet it can be so easy to believe this even in subtle ways. We can be quick to believe that things are going wrong in our life because we have not prayed enough or we've not trusted God enough. Or that must be the reason things are going wrong. As a pastor, it can be tempting to believe that things will always go well if I just do and I just say the right things. But that is just not the case. The companion of gospel faithfulness is to share in the sufferings of Jesus. The companion of gospel faithfulness is to share in the sufferings of Jesus. Friends, that is the, the nature of gospel ministry. It's the nature of faithful gospel ministry. And that takes us to the, the second point of the sermon, the content of gospel ministry. I look again at verse 25. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Well, when Paul uses the word mystery in these verses, he's talking about something that was concealed, or at least not fully understood for a time, but that has now been revealed. It has now been made clear. What was partially revealed in the Old Testament, but that has now been fully revealed in the coming of Christ. So Paul speaks of this mystery in a few other places in the New Testament. And in a broad sense, the, the mystery is the message about Christ. It is the message of the gospel, God's good news of salvation. 
It includes the fact that Jesus, who is fully God and the creator of all things, as we saw last week, that he would humble himself, take on human flesh, and would suffer and die on behalf of his people to bring them forgiveness and salvation. Well, in other places of the New Testament, particularly in Ephesians, the mystery is closely associated with the fact that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, salvation was made available to everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. We see this in, in, in Colossians 1, verse 27. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery. And then he goes on to define this mystery as Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is this mystery? How does Paul define it here in Colossians? It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, now takes up residence in the hearts of all who place their faith in him. Jew and Gentile alike. All are united together in him. As one commentator put it, Paul's focus here is on how God's new covenant people are completely identified with their representative Christ. And how that new identity gives hope for the future. Because of the intimate relationship between Christ and his people, we can have the hope of glory. That is the certainty that we will experience final glory. Friends, the prosperity gospel falsely teaches that faith in Jesus brings earthly prosperity. But the problem with the prosperity gospel is not that it sets its sights too high, but it's that it sets them far too low. The riches of the gospel are far greater than anything that we have on earth. Throughout these verses, Paul uses the language of wealth and riches and treasure to describe the gospel. The the wealth of the gospel is that we have Christ in us. He dwells with us by his spirit. He transforms our hearts, rescues us from the domain of darkness, forgives our sins, unites us together as a people, and gives us the hope of eternal life and eternal glory with him. Those who share in the sufferings of Christ will also share in his glory. By Christ's work on the cross, we have been brought into the presence of God. We do not simply get some earthly trinket that moth and rust will destroy. We get God himself. We get the hope of glory. And friends, God offers himself freely to all people from every nation and tribe and tongue and people who turn to him in repentance and faith. If you are here and not a Christian, know that God offers himself to you no matter where you are from, No matter what you have done, Paul was busy killing Christians before God confronted him on the road to Damascus. God freely offers himself to all who will repent and believe. The riches of the gospel is that you can have forgiveness and eternal life through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That through Jesus' work on the cross, you can be reconciled to God. This is why Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 28, that he proclaims him. In other words, he proclaims Jesus Christ. What was the content of Paul's message? What what is the content of all faithful gospel ministry? It is the message about Jesus. It's that he is fully God, that all things were created by him and through him and for him, that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. This, that Jesus, who is both fully God, is also fully man. He took on human flesh. He came to earth. He lived a perfect life as a man on earth, and then he died a sacrificial death on the cross, 
through which he has reconciled everything through to himself through his shed blood. And then he did not stay dead, but three days later he rose again, that all people can have new life in him. And friends, at the, the center of faithful gospel ministry is the message about Christ. That is the content of faithful gospel ministry. It is why we, we seek to preach the gospel each and every week here at Emmanuel. It's why we, we preach through sections of, of scripture and seek to explain to you what they mean. Because in doing so, we believe that the message about Christ is made clear because the Bible is the words of Christ. My friends, Jesus is all you need. And therefore, it is Jesus that we preach. And brothers and sisters, when one day you move on from this church... One day you may move to a new city or back to your home country. The number one thing you should look for in the next church you attend is that they faithfully preach the gospel. That they faithfully preach the message about Christ. It should not be the quality of their music, the number of opportunities there are to serve. Not that those are unimportant things, but the most important thing about a church is that the word of God is front and center in the ministry of the church. And that Jesus is faithfully and consistently proclaimed. As it is Jesus who is at the center of any faithful gospel ministry. And that brings us third and finally to the goal of gospel ministry. And Paul tells us exactly what the goal of faithful gospel ministry is in chapter 1 verse 28. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that, or for the purpose or with the goal that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Well, just as teachers labor to present mature students, parents labor to present mature children, coaches labor to present mature athletes, Paul labored to present mature disciples. As he prayed in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, he wanted all to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that they may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. Now, friends, that is the labor and prayer of faithful gospel ministry. It's the labor and prayer of pastoral ministry. It's to present people mature in Christ. Now, this is what Paul was so diligently striving and laboring for among the Colossians. Was he was diligently striving and laboring from among those even in Laodicea, that sister city among those even he had never met face to face. He wrote in chapter 2, verse 2, that he wanted their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love. Paul wanted to, to remind the Colossians of their unity to one another in the gospel. Paul wanted them to, to grow in their, their love and their unity with one another. And brothers and sisters, a, a mature church is a church that loves one another and has a deep unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think one of the joys of being here at Emmanuel, about being your pastor, is seeing the way that God has brought a unity and love among such a diverse people. I mean, look around. How many different countries and cultures do we have represented here? It's a joy to see the way that the gospel of Jesus Christ has united us as a people. But my prayer and my desire is that you would keep growing in that love and unity. Our love can grow stronger. Our unity can grow deeper. That was Paul's prayer for the Colossians and it's his desire for, for all people, for all Christians. His desire, my desire for you. Paul also wanted to see their hearts encouraged. 
He wanted them to know the hope and comfort that is found in the gospel. That Jesus is the one on whom you can cast your cares. That Jesus is the one that is sufficient to meet your needs, even in the face of the suffering that may come from your faithfulness to the gospel. Jesus is the one sufficient to meet your needs. Jesus is the one who can encourage you and comfort you. And notice what it was that encouraged and strengthened Paul in his own gospel ministry. Look at verse 29. It was the strength of Jesus at work in him. He had Christ in him, the hope of glory. Paul did not share these things about his ministry and his sufferings with the Colossians to make himself seem great. Oh, like, don't you see what a good apostle I am? Like, I, I'm suffering for you. I am laboring hard for you. No, Paul wanted them to see that God was great. Paul could suffer for them. He could labor and strive for them because of the strength of God that was at work in him. God's strength was made perfect in Paul's weakness. Paul's own example of joyful and faithful suffering by the strength of Christ was to be an example for the Colossians. And it was to be a testimony to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's desire, as we see in verse 2, was that the Colossians may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. Because in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As one writer put it, Christ is the one in whom is to be found all. Christ is the one in whom is to be found all that one needs in order to understand spiritual reality and to live a life that is pleasing to God. This is why Paul proclaimed Christ. This is why Paul proclaimed Christ. That's why you should prioritize attending a church that proclaims Christ. Because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It is in Christ that are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Reality cannot be truly understood apart from him. Salvation can come up through no one other than him. Living a life pleasing to the Lord cannot happen apart from him. We see in Colossians chapter 2 verse 4 that Paul was telling the Colossians all of this so that no one would deceive them with arguments that sound reasonable. He did not want the Colossians to be persuaded and deceived by false teaching. How would the Colossians be protected against false teaching? But by, being, by knowing the true treasure of Jesus Christ. I think at least once in every pastor's ministry, they are required to give the illustration of how people are trained to recognize counterfeit money. It's perhaps the most used illustration among pastors, at least where I come from. So I'm paying my pastoral dues and I'm going to give this illustration to you. Well, bank tellers and others who work with a lot of cash, well, they're trained to recognize counterfeit money so that they are not deceived by fake bills or counterfeit bills. So people cannot come up to them and, and pass off counterfeit bills, get real money in exchange. Well, in their training, they're not actually taught to recognize fake money. And they're not given like hundreds of different kinds of fake money to learn what it looks like. No, they're, they're taught how to recognize real money, real bills real durhams. They're taught everything there is to know about real money so that it will be easy to spot the fake. Be easy to spot that which is, which is different. Well, this was Paul's goal with the Colossians. He wanted them to so know Jesus. To so know the sufficiency and glory of Jesus. To be so filled with the knowledge of his will that they would automatically recognize it when someone came preaching a different gospel. When someone came teaching the prosperity gospel. 
when someone came preaching that Jesus was not enough, they would know something was wrong. They would know something was off. Paul wanted them to be filled with the knowledge of Christ. And notice from chapter 2, verse 5, that the Colossians had not yet been deceived by false teaching. Paul was encouraged by the strength of their faith. What Paul seems to be providing in this letter to the Colossians is something like preventative medicine, an annual physical, a regular checkup to make sure that they remain in good health. Paul was, was seeking to prevent spiritual sickness from creeping in by pointing them to the fullness and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Well, brothers and sisters, the goal of faithful gospel ministry is to seek to present people mature in Christ by showing them the glory and the fullness and the power and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, that he is what they need. My friends, as a pastor, I hope this is what, I hope and pray this is what I am laboring for. And this is the reason that outside of our main Sunday morning gatherings that we do have a biblical equipping class. It's why we have men and women's Bible studies. It's why we have children's Sunday school and, and youth. Our service each week, as well as these classes, are intended to serve as something of preventative medicine. They're intended to help you be filled with God's word so that you may have the riches of complete knowledge and the riches of complete understanding. They are, as Christians, we need to be continually filled with the knowledge of God's word. And it's not a one-time thing. As Christians, we need to be continually filled with the knowledge of God's word. Even the truths that we have heard over and over and over again. Christians, we need to be continually filled with the knowledge of God's word because you only grow in your maturity as you grow in your knowledge of God. Your desire should be to know God's word as well as you possibly can so you may not be deceived by plausible-sounding arguments. And we all need the preventative medicine of God's word. And again, this, this goal for which Paul was laboring was not just the goal pastors are to labor for, though it is. But we are all to be striving and laboring to present one another as mature in Christ. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. But encourage each other daily. This is written to the church. Church, encourage each other daily while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. You're not deceived by plausible sounding arguments. You're not taken captive by sin. So brothers and sisters, let me just ask you, what is it that you are striving and laboring for in your daily life? What are you striving and laboring for? Now, there are all sorts of things that we can labor and strive for in life. You can strive for physical fitness through exercise, for, for beauty through, through self-care and dieting, for success and money through your efforts at work and in your personal development. Now, these might be fine things to labor and strive for, but not if they come at the expense of your spiritual labor. As a Christian, you should also be striving to see that you and those around you are presented mature in Christ. It's not just the job description of the pastor. It's the job description of each and every Christian. So, so brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to strive for Jesus Christ. To labor and help encourage others to strive for Jesus Christ. To encourage others. To teach and to warn when necessary. Be willing to, to suffer for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Christ. To faithfully proclaim him. Point people to Jesus Christ and allow yourself to be pointed to Jesus Christ. 
that we might all grow into maturity. Let's pray.